0: This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, a couple of quick announcements. First, I'll be at Politicon this weekend in Pasadena, California. And if you plan on attending, I hope you'll come by and say hi. If you're not familiar with Politicon, it's essentially Comic-Con for Political Geeks. Everyone will be there, James Carville, Ann Coulter, Larry Wilmore, Glenn Beck, Vicente Fox, and many, many, many more big political heavy hitters. So check out the lineup at politicon.com and come by and say hi. Also, I'm pleased to announce that Kick-Ass Politics is now available on Spotify. In fact, we're one of the less than 1% of podcasts that have been asked to join Spotify's network. Don't worry, we're still available on iTunes and SoundCloud, but for those of you who are addicted to Spotify like me, you've got one more great option. Finally, we're now on a cool new crowdfunding platform called Patreon. With Patreon, you can pledge a certain amount each month, and in return for helping to sustain the show... You're going to get some fun benefits like back episodes and exclusive content, show merchandise, shout-outs on the podcast, video hangouts, invitations to live events, and more. To donate, just go to patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for your support, and thanks for continuing to listen. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. Folks, I'm bringing in the big guns today because my guest is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. You've seen him do battle with his Democrat counterpart, Senator Harry Reid, and at least until Republicans take back the White House, he, along with Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, are the de facto leaders of the Republican Party. It's a role to which Mitch McConnell has aspired ever since giving up baseball as a young boy in Athens, Georgia. After graduating from the University of Kentucky Law School, McConnell interned for the Republican Senator from Kentucky, John Cooper, who instilled in the young Mitch McConnell a reverence for the U.S. Senate and taught him that sometimes, even if the folks back home might not like it, a senator has to vote his conscience." Later, McConnell served as an assistant to Senator Marlowe Cook of Kentucky, then as Deputy Assistant Attorney General under President Gerald Ford, where he worked alongside future Justice Antonin Scalia. But he still always wanted to be a senator, and in 1984, he challenged the Democrat incumbent Walter Huddleston in a long-shot bid for the U.S. Senate, which Mitch McConnell won in an upset victory. From then on, he was never far from the action in the U.S. Senate, rising to become chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, where he helped keep the Republican majority in the Senate in 1998 and 2000. He was then elected to majority whip and served as Senate Minority Leader until 2014, when Republicans won back control of the Senate, and finally he became Senate Majority Leader. And along the way, he met and married his wife, former Secretary of Labor Elaine Chow. And for over 20 years, he's also been actively involved with his namesake institution, the nonpartisan McConnell Center at the University of Louisville, which aims to promote leadership, scholarship, and service to young people. Now he's finally written a book, but don't be fooled by that. He's not running for president and he's not retiring. The book's called The Long Game, A Memoir, and the title embodies the patience, persistence, and strategy that got Senator Mitch McConnell to the top spot in the U.S. Senate. Today he'll talk about his steady ascent through the ranks and the kind of temperament it takes to get there. He'll talk about his childhood battle with polio and the long-shot bid that got him elected to the Senate. He'll talk about battling it out with his Democrat counterpart Harry Reid and his frustration with some in his own party during the 2013 government shutdown and recent elections when Republican upstarts aided by phony conservative grassroots groups repeatedly challenged their incumbent Republican senators only to lose to Democrats in the general election. He'll talk about the importance of the Senate as a place where calmer heads prevail in our government, and speaking of calm heads, we'll discuss his endorsement of Donald Trump and see how that's sitting with him these days. Coming up with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics.
1: And now here's your host, Ben Mathis.
0: Today I'm joined over the phone by the senior senator from Kentucky and the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell. He has a new autobiography called The Long Game, A Memoir. Senator McConnell, thanks for calling in. Good morning. Glad to be with you. I enjoyed the book, Senator, and I think it came across as a good answer to all of the anti-establishment, burn-down-the-House rhetoric we've been hearing during this election. But I think what I found probably to be most refreshing about the book is that you kind of depart from the standard line of most politicians – who always try to be a little too humble and act as if somehow they just fell into office by accident or were drafted into running, which never quite rang true to me. You don't get to be in as exclusive a club as the 100 men and women in the U.S. Senate without a certain degree of personal ambition. And in the book, you talk about the fact that you always wanted to be in the Senate. You wanted to be majority leader and you admit to having a healthy degree of personal ambition and competitive spirit. I find that refreshingly honest from a politician.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, not many of us are drafted, and uh, the Senate is a place of ambitious people who want to make a difference for the country, a lot of different points of view, uh, as you can imagine, with 330 million people (laughs) representing all those folks with different points of view, but you know, the Senate's a unique institution, and uh, I know we have a very impatient public right now. I'd like to change everything immediately, but the uh, founders divided the power, and there's a guy in the White House named Barack Obama who has a very different vision of what the country ought to be, and um, he's the guy that has to sign bills, and we put everything from repeal of Obamacare to uh, repeal of the waters of the United States regulation on his desk, but he vetoed them. But uh, hopefully the American people will give us uh, somebody who can sign into law the direction we'd like to see the country go.
0: In the book, you talk about always wanting to go into politics from an early age when you came to the realization that you were never going to have a baseball career. And you specifically had your sights set on getting elected to the U.S. Senate. Why not Congress or governor or president? What was it about the U.S. Senate?
1: <laughs> well, you know, after um, realizing pretty early on I wasn't going to go anywhere in baseball, that you know, politics is a lot like baseball. It's uh, there's a long season, <laughs> a lot of ups and downs. Um, you occasionally end up on the disabled list, <laughs> but your <laughs> resilience. Uh, I think is the key. And, you know, that's true in a lot of walks of life. I always tell students with whom I spend a good bit of time that the only way to fail in America is to give up or die because we all have adversity to overcome. In my case, it did pretty early in life. I had polio when I was two years old. This is before the Salk uh, vaccine.
0: Yeah, that's something that I didn't know about you. And I, I, I imagine that a lot of people didn't know that. You got struck with polio when you were just a baby and you couldn't walk for the first two years of your life, but your mother didn't give up. How did she get you on your feet?
1: We lived in an old community in Alabama. We were about an hour's drive from Warm Springs, which President Roosevelt had set up as a polio treatment center. And my mother took me over there. They looked at my left leg and said, in order to keep this little boy out of a brace, here's what you need to do four times a day. She, they taught her a physical therapy regimen. She watched me like a hawk for two years. You imagine keeping a two-year-old from trying to prematurely walk for a couple of years? Yeah. So I had a, you know, my first memory in life actually was the last visit to Warm Springs where the nurses told my mother that they thought I'd, you know, be able to be okay. I'd be able to walk without a brace and without a limp. So it was kind of an early lesson in, long, in tenacity and hard work. Like a friend of mine said, the harder he worked, the luckier he got.
0: Yeah, that's not bad advice. And if you can overcome polio, then winning an election must probably seem like a cinch. So let's talk about your first election, Senator. Uh, It was thought to be a long-shot campaign against a very popular incumbent Democrat senator. And one of the things that you were counting on to give you a boost was President Ronald Reagan was coming to Louisville to give a speech and you were expecting that he would give you a shout-out from the stage, and you had a camera crew and everything all ready to go, so you could use that as an endorsement for your campaign yeah. commercial. <laughs> now, how did that work out for you?
1: Well, you know, this was, the, ironically, the debate in Louisville that year was the one where he didn't do very well, and he looked kind of old right. and out of it. And there was a big rally after the debate. And, you know, they, they'd ignored my campaign all year long and didn't think I had it chance, and they were probably right about that. <laughs> but um, I had my place on the stage, and Nancy Reagan was not too far away. I tried to make conversation with her, and uh, she was obviously not interested in talking. She was upset because he had not done well. But it was my moment, you know. We had a film crew there. We were going to to film his endorsement, and he began by saying, if you so happy to be in Kentucky with his good friend, Mitch O'Donnell. <laughs> As you can imagine, I was uh, crestfallen, and um, it was uh, a long-shot campaign at best. And I finally finally managed to eke it out by about a vote of (laughs) precinct.
0: Yeah, and uh, a part of that credit goes to your ad guy, who was a young Roger Ailes, who we all know is now head of Fox News.
1: Yeah. Roger's the only person I ever worked with I thought wanted to win as bad as I did. He's a <laughs> heck of a competitor. You know, he started C N B C for NBC before he started Fox for um Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. For Murdoch. Yeah. Oh. He 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 pivoted after Bush forty one got elected president. He pivoted and went into a different line of work and it obviously it's <laughs> been an extraordinary success. And uh, we were thirty you know, thirty five points down in July. And we had a big uh, strategy meeting in Louisville. And I looked at Roger and I said, is this race over? And he said, well, I could never recall anybody this far behind this late winning, but I don't think it's over. In other words, he didn't give up. And so.
0: <laughs> well, your ad man, Mr. Ailes, came up with an ad attacking the incumbent senator that was instrumental to your winning the race. What was that ad?
1: We, we came up with, with an issue that he depicted it doesn't sound funny telling it, but it Huddleston had been missing votes to make speeches for money. And so Roger came up with these Kentucky bloodhounds looking for him to get him back to work. <laughs> and it was quite humorous and kind of electrified the campaign and, um, you know, got people talking about it for the first time. And we managed to, uh, to, to win it. And um, even though Reagan had a terrific day, he carried 49 out of 50 states. He didn't have any coattails. We, uh, my party, actually lost two seats in the Senate. I was the only Republican in the country to defeat a Democratic incumbent senator that day. So I went from, <laughs> I went from total obscurity to being, you know, kind of uh, taken around Washington as a, as the, as the, as the new kid on the block.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you were the bell of the ball for a while there, and you took to the Senate like a fish to water. You fairly quickly started rising up the leadership ladder. You served as the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, then as whip, and then minority leader, and then finally, you made it to majority leader in the Senate. And along the way, you've had your share of battles with Harry Reid and the Democrats, and also occasionally with some of those in your own party. One instance that you talk about in the book is the government shutdown that happened a couple of years ago when Republicans in the House made a great big show of holding up the annual budget bill because they wanted to use it to defund Obamacare, which obviously would have been vetoed by the president anyway, but they still ended up shutting down the government all for a political stunt. You talk about that in a chapter aptly titled, Do You Want to Make a Point or Do You Want to Make a Difference? I guess my question to you is... Is there too much of this grandstanding and political showmanship, not just in the House, but more recently among some of your newer senators as well?
1: Well, I don't mind making a point occasionally, but it it needs to not be a foolish uh, gesture. What what my friend George Will, the columnist, calls the politics a futile gesture. (laughs) Here was the plan that we were going to shut down the government in order to defund Obamacare. Two problems with that. Number one, Obamacare is an entitlement, and so it's not affected by what we call discretionary counts. You could shut down the government, Obamacare would still go on. So obviously that wouldn't achieve the goal. And second, why would Obama of Obamacare <laughs> veto a bill that repealed Obamacare? So that's what I would call the politics of futile gesture. It, it's okay to make a political point from time to time, but don't do it stupidly. Don't do it in a yeah. way that, Raises people's expectations to think something could be achieved that cannot possibly be achieved. That right. kind of thing, I think, is um, you know not good for the party. Uh, we did end up shutting down the government. Our numbers, our approval numbers in the country, went down ten points, the most precipitous drop uh, in recorded polling history. So, you know, we've got an old Kentucky saying down here: "There's no education, the second kick of a mule." <laughs> uh, don't. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah,
0: I think we have a similar saying where I'm from in Texas, too. Um, And another one of these family squabbles that caused you no small amount of frustration, uh, both as the former head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee and as a Republican leader in the Senate, is these groups such as the so-called Senate Conservatives Fund, which you have dubbed, quote-unquote, the professional right And you say that these groups are run by paid political consultants who have hijacked what was the Tea Party movement, and they've made a business out of waging primary challenges against Republican incumbents, including yourself, the the leader of the party. Now, these groups have cost Republicans a number of key races in recent elections in 2010 and 2012 because incumbent Republicans then had to spend time and money defending themselves from the right instead of focusing on defeating Democrats. Do you think conservatives have finally learned their lesson about cannibalizing other Republicans like this?
1: Well, I wish we, we cured the problem in 2014. What happened in 2010 and 2012? This particular group, the Senate Conservatives, got behind some people in primaries that couldn't win in November. It cost us a seat in Delaware, one in Colorado one in Nevada, and then in 2012, they did it again, cost us a seat in Missouri and in Indiana. That's five lost seats. So in 2014, I said, okay, (laughs) the key to this is making sure we have, it's not about philosophy, it's about winning, because if you don't win, you can't make policy. Losers go home, winners make policy. So what we did in 2014 was make sure the most electable candidate Won every primary, and we took the Senate. Uh, we had another skirmish in 2016 this year in Indiana, where right. the Senate conservatives signed, lined up with a guy who couldn't win, but we beat him by 34 points in the primary. So m- my point is, it's not really about philosophy. It's it's about can you you know can you win the November election? Because if, if you if you don't win the election, you're wasting your time. The other guys make the policy.
0: Yeah, and you know, the thing is, you don't see the Democrats doing that. I mean, it often seems to me like many conservatives are more interested in defeating other Republicans than defeating Democrats and actually winning elections. And the other thing about it is, even if they win, people don't take into account things like the fact that you may have defeated a longtime Republican senator, such as Dick Lugar, who has seniority, and he has relationships that he's built over many years with other senators and important committee assignments or even chairmanships. And even if you primary Dick Luger or an incumbent senator and win and then get elected, you're still starting from square one as a junior senator with no reputation, no relationships, bottom-of-the-barrel committee <laughs> assignments, and really at the end of the day... That's doing a huge disservice to your constituents back home, I think. But we're going to take a quick break right now, and then I'll be back to talk more with Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. We'll be back in just a moment. If you're interested in my conversation with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, then I think you'll enjoy his new book, The Long Game, a Memoir. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from Audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be The Long Game by my guest today, Senator Mitch McConnell, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com. Backslash kickass politics, or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audio book of your choice. And now, back to more with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. We're back, and today I'm talking with Republican Senator and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell about his new book, The Long Game, a memoir. Well, Senator McConnell. We were just talking about this unfortunate trend of conservatives launching primary challenges to Republican incumbents, and you got a little bit of a taste of that when you were up for re-election in Kentucky in 2014. You were not only getting hit from the left, but you were also getting challenged from the right. In fact, the Senate Conservatives Fund actually endorsed your opponent, and here you were, the leader of the Republican Party. (laughs) I mean... Uh, apparently, according to the book, you considered hanging it up and not running for re-election that year. Uh, You called that one the race of your life. What were the factors that you weighed when you decided to go for it
1: again? Well, you know, going back to the book a minute, I, I remembered a childhood experience. I was about seven years old. And I had a playmate across the street who was a year older than I was and bigger than I was, and he was sort of bullying me around. And it had been going on for a couple of weeks. And my dad, who was, had served in World War II and was lucky to survive and, and come home, was out working in the yard. And he called me over and he said, Son, I want you to go over there. I want you to beat Dickie McGrew up. And I said, Daddy? I said, dad, you know he's he's bigger than I am and he's older than I am. And my dad said, well, I'm bigger than he is and older than he is. So, (laughs) given that, he'd probably be arrested for child abuse today. Uh, Given that choice, I went across the street and started swinging. And I beat Dickie up and I bent his glasses. Now, where's Dickie today, I wonder? (laughs) I don't know. This is a story I probably wouldn't remind him of. It's probably not as big a part of his life as it was of mine. But when I was thinking about the possibility of hanging it up in 2014, I knew I had the Senate Conservatives Fund coming at me in the primary uh, with a credible candidate, and I knew what would be waiting for me in the general. And I thought about whether I you know, was willing to stand up to the bullies again, and I finally concluded I was. And it all worked out well. I carried 118 out of 120 counties in the primary and 110 out of 120 in the general. And standing up to the bullies, an early lesson my father taught me, uh, was the key.
0: Hopefully that's a pattern that some of your fellow Republican senators up for re-election this year will be able to emulate. But since you brought up bullies, uh, I have to ask this question. You've endorsed the presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump, but from reading your book... You have an awful lot to say in here about candidates trashing the so-called Republican establishment and saying incendiary things just to get a rise out of voters, not thinking about the long game and not thinking about winning the general election, Uh, no respect for process and responsible deliberation of serious issues. Um, You'll have to forgive me, but it sounds an awful lot to me like you're talking about Donald Trump.
1: Am I wrong? Well, here's the deal. You know, he <laughs> he wanted fair and square. Right. Uh, he got the most votes. It's no secret that he's struggling. Uh, as you and I are talking today, we just uh, saw his latest uh, f- finance report, and it, you know, there's not much money in there. And um, so, you know, he's 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 earned the nomination, but in order to be elected president, he needs to pivot and start, uh, acting presidential, you know, for example, right. there's nothing, nothing wrong with using a script. Most candidates use it for president, use a script. It's how you remember everything you want to say. And, um, I think just kind of going from rally to rally and winging it is, uh, may have worked in the primary, but it's not going to work in the general. So I've endorsed him because he's, he's, he's earned the nomination. But he needs to um, start acting like a serious candidate for president if he wants to win the election.
0: Well, yeah, and you have actually met with him in person and gave him what I would expect to be some pretty helpful advice from someone who has been in the game for quite a while. Not that I'm sure that he listens to anyone, but what were some of the other tips that you gave him?
1: Uh, that's that's kind of the nub of it. I mean, I'll just yeah. give you an experience we had that's similar to that. We were at the NRA convention and we happened to be in my home down in Louisville and we were in the green room before going on. And I said, Hey Donald, do you have a script? And he <laughs> he, he pulled the paper out of his pocket and he said, you know, I hate a script. It's so boring. <laughs> I said, Donald put me down in favor of boring. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the point I was making that you and I were just discussing, which is that running for president is a, is a big deal. And, um, it requires a major operation, and we haven't seen that yet. And it requires, you know, really kind of thinking through what you're going to say, <clears throat> because he's made a number of very significant gaffes that have um, had him moving down in the polls. Look, I, I want him. I want him to change, and I want him to win, because I know what Hillary Clinton will be four more years, just like the last eight. And I think the country would like to go in a different direction. He needs to make it easier for the American people to do what they're inclined to do this year anyway, which is to go in a different direction.
0: Well, yeah. And there's a lot at stake here for you personally, because, you know, the danger that everyone is worried about on the right is that Trump could harm Republicans down ballot. And you have a number of Senate seats that uh, are going to be contested this time around. It could cost you your leadership in the Senate and the majority.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we knew this was going to be a challenging cycle anyway, because we had such a good year, uh, six years ago, we have a lot of exposure this year. We have 24 members up, and the Democrats only have 10, and a number of our Senate seats are in very competitive states, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Illinois, Nevada, Florida. So, um, yeah, I mean, even if we had a very smooth-running, competitive presidential race, this was going to be a challenging cycle, and it, it still is, but um, I think holding the Senate is going to be extremely important no matter who wins the, uh, the presidency.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the title of the book is, again, called The Long Game, and it's a nod to your baseball days and also to how things work in the Senate. You know, in the House of Representatives, things happen very fast, or at least fast by government standards. And the mood boils pretty hot compared to the Senate, where policy is shaped in a calmer, perhaps more deliberate fashion. Uh, I, I think the closest relationship to that of the House and the Senate for me is probably that of a man and his wife. You know, the, the husband gets all these wild, impulsive ideas and the wife chimes in as the voice of reason. Um As someone who has never wanted to be anywhere but right where you are in the U.S. Senate, you seem to have a great reverence for how the Senate works. You respect the process and the rules of the Senate. And I think the role that the Founding Fathers intended the Senate to play as that steady hand in that calm, deliberative body, in this hot, impatient political climate, do you worry that Americans don't appreciate that aspect of the Senate or even necessarily understand how it's supposed to fit into how our government
1: works? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, people are not happy, and I understand why they're not happy. They're worse off now than they were when the president came to office. So there's considerable reason for unhappiness. But it's important to remember the founders of our country wanted to divide the power up. You know, we have three separate branches, unlike parliamentary governments, which don't. Uh, We have a Senate and a House that are very different. You know, George Washington was asked at the Constitutional Convention, what what do you think the Senate's going to be like? And he, according to legend, said, like the saucer under the teacup. The tea's going to slush out of the cup down into the saucer and cool off. In other words, the Senate was a place where things didn't move quickly and were thought over. And there are two ways you can look at that. You can be really impatient because it's hard to do things in the Senate, or you can say, boy, it sure has saved saved us from a lot of really bad ideas <laughs> that came out of the House and never made it through the Senate. So I think the Senate has served an important function throughout the 200 years of our history. I think it still does. Um, I think one of the reasons um, people are so angry all the time, in addition to the fact that that their lives are not better off, and I can understand that they they deserve to be upset about that. Is that um, they think that the level of discourse now is unique? Uh, believe me, it, it it isn't. I mean, there isn't anything we've said about each other that comes close to what Hamilton and Jefferson said about each other. That's true. And we have we have had a single incident where a congressman from South Carolina came over and almost beat to death a senator from Massachusetts on the floor of the
0: Senate.
1: (laughs) I mean, in other words, we've had robust political debate throughout our history. What's the difference? The internet and 24 hour TV. People just hear more about it and are subjected to more of the debates than they used to be in the past. Uh, but there's, there's nothing unique, um, in American history about the level of discourse or the the great debates we're having today, there have been a lot tougher periods in American history than this.
0: Yeah, there sure have been. And you've been a good steward of the Senate and a rare civilizing influence in American politics, especially these days. So I thank you, Senator, for that. I enjoyed the book, and I encourage folks to pick up a copy. It definitely lends some balance to all of the anti-establishment, pro-outsider rhetoric that we're hearing in this election. Uh, It's called The Long Game, a memoir, by my guest today, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Senator McConnell, thanks so much for joining me over the phone, and uh, you just keep doing what you're doing, sir.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed the talk.
0: Thanks again to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell for coming on the show, and if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd encourage you to read his new book, The Long Game, A Memoir. I'll include an Amazon link where you can order it in the show notes for this episode and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Or if you'd prefer to listen to the audio version, you can download that for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. And Senator McConnell does not have a Twitter account, but his press team does, so you can follow him vicariously on Twitter at McConnell Press. You can also visit his official Senate website at McConnell.senate.gov please subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. And you can also help us reach our fundraising goal for the year and get rewarded by donating to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Follow us on Twitter at @kaPolitics or visit Kick-Ass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.